The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. Now, frame um, favors the durable power of eternity over the living will. And um, the reason is that he says um, the uh, giving legal authority to another person or giving them proxy um, is um, more flexible, more responsive to circumstances than a paper document. Um, and uh, I, I think there's truth to that, you know. I, I'm not sure we now need to have two separate things when the legislation is taking the living will more seriously, but I think there is truly some advantage to having the, a living person um, represent the person who's in a vegetative state. Um, But even there, you've got the problem of you've got to be sure you've got the right person. You've got to be sure that the person's going to agree with you and so on. I like that. Well, for what it's worth, the people that I work with in Chestnut Hill don't like this thing much because, well, that's just one opinion, uh, because they, they say that almost every one of the cases envisaged has about ten other variations that aren't mentioned. And... In, and every case is different. Every every case is different, and um, the patient can't possibly be expected to understand all the nuances of the case in a way that an experienced doctor can. Um, and uh, though they're the last people to uh, to want uh, the, the the doctor to have too much power, um, they uh, they're just reluctant to put so much um, decision-making um, capacity into the hands of somebody who doesn't know much about medicine. And um, I know when I go to the dentist, he tells me all this stuff about what could happen if, it, and I don't really want to know about it. I want him to do a good job and try the best he can. Now that's probably, you know, the other extreme, but um, um, I, I don't want to become a dentist. I've, I've got another vocation. And um, those people are supposed to be able to handle these things. Now, of course, they have they have legal constraints, and you know a lot of people do, in this country turn around and sue. I mean, this is one of the reasons for these uh, medical directives: is that in a in our uh, litigious society, you have an increasing number of people who are using loopholes to to get money, and so when the doctor does this instead of that, you sue. And um, I never quite understood how getting a lot of money is is a compensation for losing somebody but I guess uh, money is always good to have so but they're protecting themselves you know um, let me um, tell you also uh, what uh, this guy Brett says about the uh, 
the problem of, of this over-specific thing. Um, he says, well, the checklist of interventions does not answer the two questions that really matter. One, what general views about medical care and life-sustaining treatment would this person espouse for the situation of advanced dementia? Okay. Second, when those views are applied to the context of a specific infection, will antibiotics produce a greater balance of benefits than burdens? Uh, he's talking about um, one of these cases here where do you hold, do you have antibiotics or not? I guess it's um, very technical, but there are certain cases where you just don't know um, um, whether um, the benefits are going to outweigh the, the uh, liabilities. And then he says, the second problem is that various combinations of pre-selected interventions, when applied in a real-life context, may contradict the patient's goals or suggest unusual patterns of medical practice. And he, consider the case of one of my own patients who completed the medical directive. In the context of advanced dementia, he selected blood transfusions but rejected diagnostic procedures such as upper gastrointestinal endoscopy. If that patient developed upper gastrointestinal bleeding, we would be asked to administer transfusions while avoiding an endoscopic procedure that might not only be diagnostic but also therapeutic, for example, coagulating the bleeding site. If the patient's goal in these th situations was a speedy death, he would likely not want either transfusions, transfusions or endoscopy. If he wanted to continue to live, he would likely want both. But it's absurd to dissociate the two interventions by replacing blood losses, but not performing a simple procedure to stop the bleeding. Okay. All right. So he's saying that um, these directives, though they give the patient all kinds of knowledge. They only give the patient a little knowledge, not enough to cover some of the things that are very obvious in medical practice, like, you know, stopping bleeding. And in, in the case of, uh, of having, uh, uh, you know, uh, endoscopy. So the, the difficulty with this, this document here is, is uh, at least the people I work with, there's too, there are too many options that don't end up making things clear in real life, but make, uh, because they sacrifice the, the forest for the trees. And, um, and they prefer, I think, in general, you need to have a balance between the general goals of, you know, don't keep me alive if it's going to be um, burdensome and continue being a doctor whose job it is to um, to care for the uh, preservation of life I think I think that's the that's what most people are, are saying is, is is the best balance now um, here let me give some of this stuff <laughs> to Laura we've been working on his bottom line is, um, a little direction is good, a lot is bad, if I can just put it crudely. He, he, he feels that, um, yes, 
compared to the 50s and 60s, we're in a better position because the patient, um, the patient's rights are being honored. Um, and um, but if you go to the extent of having all these options, you'll get yourself not into more clarity, but into less clarity because of scenarios that don't work out according to Hoyle. And, um, and the doctor really needs to know um, what to anticipate and what's going to go on in this case. And sometimes the decisions have to be made very fast. That's another th thing that um, is often pointed out, is when you have something really detailed like that, um, and, and somebody's in the emergency room gasping for, for, for life, you know, you're not going to sort of look up the files and say, hmm, let's see, now under 3B, what would he have done? Well, okay, you know, you just don't have time. You've got to make a decision. So they, they uh, favor the simple general directive of, if there's no reasonable chance, please don't preserve my dying, but not anything more specific than that. And he, he points out, he, he says, for him, in the final analysis, the most important element in, in planning for mental incapacity is communication among the patients, families, health care providers. And as I said before, that's, the, that's one of the hardest parts, is to go to your relatives and say, look, uh, here I am, a young person, but I will not always be young. If such should happen to me, please do this, please don't do that. Now, um, on the 5th of November, 1990, President Bush signed the Patient Self-Determination Act. And this law was meant to um, increase patient involvement in decisions regarding life-sustaining treatment. And um, by, by um, ensuring that advanced directives for healthcare are available to physicians at the time medical decisions are being made, and that patients who have not prepared such documents are aware of their legal right to do so. Um, this uh, legislation was, of course, passed in the wake of the Cruzan case, um, and that had awakened uh, national interest in the use of advanced directives in order to avoid unwanted medical inter interventions. Um, but the first living will statutes were enacted 15 years ago, and most of these statutes have been placed have been in places have been in place for more than five years. Um, even though this means of expressing treatment preference has been widely publicized, only eight to 15% of American adults have prepared a living will. Let me take a survey here, quick. How many of you have uh, prepared a living will? Yeah, nobody. Well, we fit the statistical curve here. Only 4% of acute care hospitals routinely inquire about the existence of advanced directives at the time of admission. And so uh, written advanced directives still play only an occasional role in decisions to withhold or withdraw treatment. Um, although few Americans have expressed their treatment preferences in writing, um, decisions to withhold or withdraw are common in the United States. Um, about 
80% of deaths in this country occur in acute care um, centers, hospitals, or chronic care facilities, and 70% of deaths in the hospitals are preceded by a decision to limit medical treatment. That's quite a, that's quite a huge amount, isn't it? Um, without advanced directives, then, such decisions have to be made by family members and physicians who often do not know what type of care the individual would have wanted under such circumstances. Um, so this, I think, behooves, it behooves Christians to, uh, um, you know, to be aware, of, uh, to be aware of, of, of these responsibilities and also, I think, of the biblical mandate that we began with um, for, for self-love uh, and, and self-preservation. And it would seem contradictory, perhaps, to, um, to have a, a strong uh, biblical view of the Sixth Commandment and its prohibition of murder and, and, and self-murder. On the one hand, and on the other hand, uh, have uh, expressed directives to l limit the, the, uh, the length of life. But I think they're very compatible because the Bible insists on the sanctity and the quality of life as much as or more than the length Longevity is taught in the Bible as a blessing, but that's all things being equal. Longevity is not a virtue in and of itself. It's pagan religions that stress the, uh, the fountain of youth and, and you know, um, going on uh, forever and, 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 and not dying and so on. And it's our pagan culture today that stresses um, youthfulness and health um, and uh, and hides dying from us. Um, now, next week, we're going to go a little bit more into the legal aspects of this, into what, what, hospitals, um, what hospitals do uh, say. But um, the, uh, the Patient Self-Determination Act um, is going to become law. Now, officially, December 1st is D-Day for um, all healthcare institutions in the United States. However, many states have gotten so tangled up in interpreting the federal directive for the hospitals that there's going to be delays. Um, but it, it, just the same, it is imminent. Um, healthcare institutions must also prepare written materials that explain the policies to patients and their families in a language that's simple and clear. Um, for example, a facility opposed to the withdrawal or, of nutrition and hydration from permanently unconscious patients would prepare a brochure for distribution to the public that describes its policies in the following manner. Quote, this institution provides life-saving food and water to all patients who have not explicitly rejected this treatment in a living will. Unquote. So disclosing these policies well in advance is meant to avoid misunderstandings or conflicts in the future, and they happen all the time. You know, families going about, but I thought you wouldn't do this. Well, that's in our charter. Well, they didn't read the charter. Well, it's not been available, and so on. Um, so such dis disclosure also allows patients to choose healthcare facilities with policies that, that uh, are consistent with their own beliefs. Um, so all things being equal, the, uh, the law ought to be a help. Now, um, there are some limitations, and we'll get into this next week as well. The law does not specify 
that physicians must discuss advanced directives with patients. This is going to be done by administration. And also, the law relies on inpatient facilities to perform a function that may, that a lot of people believe uh, should take place primarily in the outpatient setting. And then third, uh, with the exception of the uh, provisions, the provision of the law that applies to health maintenance organizations, the law does little to encourage the preparation of advanced directives before the need for hospitalization or long-term care arises. Fourth, patients who most need to discuss their treatment preferences, those who are acutely ill um, and immediately in need of life-sustaining intervention, may be unable to do so because of their own illness. Um, and then finally, um, though the law requires healthcare institutions and the government to, uh, to engage in, in education, public education, uh, this provision of the law is not supported by any specific funding. So money rears its ugly head once again, and it's going to be a big burden on people who, who wish to do this. Um, so uh, these, uh, the, the, the living will um, and other advanced directives uh, currently play a limited role in medical decision-making. Um, and um, the new federal law will require healthcare providers uh, and other facilities um, to record patient preferences, uh, but the, the law does, does very little to promote discussion or preparation of advanced directives before hospitalization. And as Alan Brett pointed out, communication really is one of the key elements to, to all of this. And I, I believe that it would be most appropriate for churches um, to, um, to be one of the, the, the places where this kind of, um, um, where this kind of uh, discussion could take place. And it would be, an, it would be very opportune to, to bring in scriptural material, to bring in legal material, and bring in medical material. And most churches have those resources right there at their disposal, and it would be great to educate people. I know I've kicked around churches a lot, and I have heard very, very little on this. Um, in his typical bombastic way, uh, Jay Adams says, um, we have a lot of sex education, um, and yet not everybody is going to have this uh, experience. We have very little death education, yet everybody is going to have that experience. Uh, you know, what's going wrong? Um, all right, one more document. Um, but this simply gives you a, um, uh, a summary of what the, what the bill is. Um, a little parenthesis here. Um, uh, Senator Danforth was a, uh, a classmate and close friend of Will Barker. And we're hoping he'll come to our conference this spring. Um, so this says pretty much what, I, what I've been telling you. Um, it requires all healthcare institutions, which is hospitals, skilled nursing places, hospices, home care programs, and HMOs who get Medicare and Medicaid to uh, uh, clarify for the patient what their rights and responsibilities are. And that means they've got to do it in writing. <coughs> And um, they uh, are responsible to document 
the individual's medical record. Um, there's a big debate, as I said, as to how this is going to be done. Um, is it going to be done on admission? There's enough things to fill out as it is when you get admitted. Um, is this going to be one more document, or are they going to streamline? Uh, and then some admission takes, uh, you know, um, a lot more time than than the uh, the presenting illness allows for. So that uh, it, it just becomes very complicated. But in any case, they're they're working this out. Um, and the substance of the law. Uh, is a matter for each state. Okay, that's not something the federal government has. They simply said states have to make it clear, but each state decides what it's going to do. You have the old states' rights debates coming in, um, and um, that's one of the reasons why it's taking so much time. Is that the legislatures are debating um, how how to put this into how to implement this. Okay, so there's a, there's the there's another document. Um, all right, let's. Uh, does anyone want to um, say anything? We've got we've got a few minutes left in the in the uh, in the class period. Um, does anybody want to um, react to uh, any of this material or talk about the scriptural material that we read earlier about uh, suicide and so on? Anybody want to um, make a comment? Have you picked out the fact that John Frame? Interestingly, I think, uh, does not use, does not like the term euthanasia at all. He, um, he, doesn't, he doesn't think the distinction between active and passive euthanasia should be made in, with that vocabulary. Um, he would prefer letting die um, to passive euthanasia. Um, or he would, um, he just doesn't like the idea that we um, we talk about good death, whether active or passive at all, because you're not killing someone. Uh, you're, you may be letting somebody die and not imposing uh, great burdens on that person. Interesting how um, undeveloped some of our ethical thinking is in these areas and how very difficult it is to bridge scripture to, to modern situations. I notice again in Frame, for whom I have an enormous respect, um, on page 69 there, he, he, goes to, he has these scriptural references, and then, then at the bottom he says, what about organ transplants? Well, he says, well, the only thing I know about is the golden rule. And then he, he gets to go over to the ground of feeling and preference and so on. He says, uh, if I were a patient, I would not feel free to do this. The idea of living as a vegetable is repugnant to me. Uh, I mean, we, we, it's very hard not to go over just to emotional language because, you know, we haven't been able to do the work on exactly what Scripture teaches. Um, and that's true of Wenberg as well. Wenberg, uh, in discussing this in the reading that you did for today, uh, he says, well, though technically keeping the heart going, keeping the breathing going, and feeding are the same thing, not feeding seems to him ghoulish, as his word, compared to, you know, not keeping the heart going or the breathing going. He's not using scripture. He says it seems ghoulish, which, you know, it's true. So it's, I think a lot of work needs to be done here ethically to, to bring our, our scriptural awareness to bear on um, um, 
Well, okay, one more thing then, if we were finished with that. I, I clipped out, I thought, a, a very moving, um, speaking of emotions, I mean, it's very emotional, but it's, it's, it's kind of a, it's, it's, a, it's, it's I think, uh, something that um, t expresses much of our position, but in from a, someone from a very different background. Um, for the sake of the tape, this is from the International Herald Tribune, Wednesday, September 18th, 1991, page 5. And it's an article by George Flesch, uh, Why I Stopped Doing Abortions. 